Welcome to Hollowed Ground Storycast. I'm Alan. I'm Anya. And I'm Dr. Paul Moffat, and this episode is about my fathomless fixation on La Morte d'Arthur by Sir Thomas Mallory. It is a shame for you to say him such worship. So excited to have you on, Paul. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. We go way back with you in a way because um, you got in contact with us when we first started our first podcast, uh, Shadows and Shamblers, and uh, you had your own podcast going and you were like, hey, how about you? Uh, how about some cross promotion? And uh, so that that was the first way that I found out about you and I've uh, followed you for a long time. I've taken some of your courses. And so like for people who don't know who you are, you, you have a PhD in medieval literature and you've done poetry. You, you're a musician. Uh, <laughs> you put this in the notes that you're a dilettante and put that word in my mouth. Um, <laughs> but I, I've loved your uh, podcast that you did with your wife, Jan, who's come on our show uh, way too seriously. Uh, you have other podcasts, Halfway Expert, Popular Opinion. You run Clockwork Academy. So you're like an internet mogul. <laughs> A lot of minorly listened to and successful stuff. <laughs> I'd completely forgotten about that cross-promotion thing. That was Clockworks cast, the Legion podcast. That's right. We thought American Gods and Legion had similar vibes. And so mm -hmm. I was like, well, if we could introduce listeners to each other, that would be good. I just, I have this like very clear memory of after you sent that email to Alan, listening to Clockworks cast as I was driving 10 hours across <laughs> Croatia and Serbia. That's right. Oh, wow. <laughs> because I was going, I like drove to Belgrade to visit my friend who's from Serbia yeah, Clockworks was a podcast we did about the TV show Legion that ended when the TV show ended and that I did with my wife, Jan, that was a lot of fun. That was our, we started it at the, about the same time as we started Way Too Seriously, which is a podcast about kids movies that has kind of become, it didn't officially end Way Too Seriously, but it's kind of defunct because our kids have gotten older. <laughs> We don't. We used to watch a kids' movie once a week, and then we would discuss it. And now we don't watch them. We still watch a movie with our kids, but now they're like, they want older kid movies, and it just doesn't fit the brand anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. Well, let's uh, get back to the topic at hand. So, Paul, what is a good plot summary? of Lamort D'Arthur, like what do we need to know to kind of understand what's going on? I'll give you the uh, colophon at the end of the book that summarizes it according to the first publisher, William Caxton. He said, this is the end of the noble and joyous book entitled Lamort D'Arthur, notwithstanding it treateth of the birth, life, and acts of the said King Arthur, and of his noble knights of the round table, their marvellous inquests and adventures, the achieving of the Sangrail, and in the end the dolorous death and departing out of this world of them all. Which is to say, it's about King Arthur. And it starts, it's called Le Mort, but it starts before he's born, and it goes on for a while after he dies. All the things that you know about King Arthur really come from Lamort D'Arthur. So the Sword and the Stone is in there, Lancelot and Guinevere and their love affair, the whole quest for the Holy Grail, uh, 
that's the plot of the Mort Darthur, and then they all die at the end. But it's not so much because of tragedy. I mean, it is tragedy, but it's also just because they keep telling the story until it's over. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it has to end with their death, otherwise it would just still be going. Exactly. I remember once reading uh, John Steinbeck, reading a couple of Steinbeck novels and thinking like, his books are so depressing, everyone dies in the end. And then suddenly realizing it's not really that he's depressing. It's just that he tells the story until it's over. <laughs> it's their whole life. Yeah. It's their whole <laughs> life. So everyone right. always dies at the end of a Steinbeck novel, <laughs> not because he's especially depressing, but because if they're still alive, he has more story to tell. Mm-hmm. It's not like it ends in a giant apocalyptic battle. I mean, for some people it does, but mm-hmm. it just it does like just continue to go on. And then those like, oh, and then they're in a convent and, you know, on and on and on and on until it's on their deathbed. But it is like very um, I found it very emotional and cathartic to get to those endings. This reading like I spent so much time with all of these characters and. And sometimes it can feel pretty distant because of, you know, it's like hundreds of years old writing style. But then like, you know, Lancelot's on his deathbed and he's telling people stuff. And I'm like, Lance, you, oh, God, buddy, you really messed up at the end there. It, you know, but it did like deliver something that I was like, wow, this has like a lot of emotional punch. I can see why it's been so potent in the uh, culture. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is... Absolutely one of the things that keeps drawing me into Lamorte d'Arthur and keeps me so entranced with it. The whole book, but especially the ending, is very emotionally real, and the characters are very human. We have especially... (laughs) This is a bit of a chip on medievalists' shoulder, because there is a narrative that says that interiority was invented in the renaissance no one usually says it that directly but like people Mm -hmm. talk about the renaissance is the time when people discovered that they were full whole deep humans and shakespeare (laughs) is the first i mean i have seen this not said by uh i've seen this said by like kids shows But it still is a a meta-narrative that, like, Shakespeare was the first playwright who wrote about his characters with, like, realistic depth as humans. And, like, that's not at all true. One of the cliché, one of the stereotypes against medieval literature is that it is flat. And then when you read Le Morte d'Arthur and the characters are so human and there is so much pathos and the ending especially when they are... Like, they have made mistakes, and they have made not mistakes, but they are dealing with the mistakes of each other and of others. I mean, they've all made mm. mistakes, but, and the, the, they can't undo what's been done, and they're all very human. And even, I'm saying Renaissance because I, that's what I assume people know, but we don't say Renaissance, we say early modern, because Renaissance implies a rebirth of some light that had gone out, and no, <laughs> it's not a rebirth of anything. Well... The the word Renaissance, was that applied by the people in the Renaissance? Like, was that a self-congratulatory label or was that put on after the fact by other people? It's a retrospective okay. uh, labeling. I mean, there were many Renaissances from like the 12th century until the 16th century. There were many small Renaissances when we look back on them, but at the time... I don't know. I'm a medievalist, not a Renaissance scholar, so I don't know when the first word Renaissance uh, gets used, but not in the 16th century yet. We'll talk about Le Morte d'Arthur lots, but just in terms of medieval literature in general, 
what draws me to it and has drawn me to it is this like interplay between in some ways the middle ages are like an alien land where everything is very foreign very unfamiliar and at the same time uh it is so familiar and i really enjoy that interplay between like there are cultural assumptions that are very different from 21st century canadian cultural assumptions Mm, but individual human emotion is the same and so people react in a whole range of ways and writers represent that in a whole range of ways and so it's mallory is my uh, favorite that i've been fixated on but any medieval literature has like the shows you the depth of human emotion in very uh what are often very moving ways and so speaking of the past um let's talk a little bit about the production uh creation history of lamort d'arthur and a little bit more background context um because i'm not sure um if all of our listeners are going to know that in terms of history background and context one of the things to know before i go back in time is that uh, Lamort d'Arthur has for centuries been kind of the King Arthur text. And there are other ones written and they go back to Lamort d'Arthur as their text that they compare themselves to and check. And if you want to be authoritative, you check Lamort d'Arthur. And if you want to be radical, you go do something different from Lamort d'Arthur, right? It's the It's the text that is the Arthurian legend, especially in English for centuries. In the 15th century, Lamort d'Arthur was written in 1469-1470 by Sir Thomas Mallory. We don't know very much for sure about Sir Thomas Mallory. He, we know because he's Sir that he was a knight, and there's a few places in the text where he refers to himself as a knight prisoner. And then people have done some historical work to make guesses of there's a couple of Thomas Mallory's who were alive at the right time. Not all of them were knights. Not all of them are known to be prisoners. So there's one that we think probably was the Sir Thomas Mallory who wrote Lamart d'Arthur, but he wasn't famous at the time. He's not a Chaucer who, uh, you know, was a public figure while he was alive. Sir Thomas Mallory was not that. Um, and Lamart d'Arthur is a, it's a mix of translation, collection, and new writings about King Arthur. So there's a couple of Uh, very influential um, works about the legend of King Arthur in French, and then a few more in older English. And Mallory takes the French ones mostly, translates them into English, intersperses them with bits from the English, intersperses them with a little bit of uh, his own original stories, maybe some stories that weren't original, we don't know, there's no source known. There's some that are for sure original to him. There's some that we don't know if they're original. There's some that a lot that we for sure are not original. And he puts it all together into one story. Lamort d'Arthur is written, as I said, in 1469-1470. But uh, it was published in 1480 by William Caxton, who was uh, the first publisher, the first printer in England. The printing press was a new invention, Uh, Caxton brought the printing press from Germany to England, and he is the first publisher in England, and for a while the only publisher in England. Caxton's successor did a new edition. It has been 
continually printed ever since. It is the only... Uh, more Arthurian people like to say this. You could... <laughs> who knows how verifiable this is? But, pe- but Arthurian people say this all the time. Le Morte d'Arthur is the only work of medieval literature still widely read by non-specialists for pleasure. Um, and that's partly because it uh, is relatively late... So the language is not modern English, but it is so close to modern English that a non-specialist can read it and understand what it is, whereas like 10 years earlier, you'd have a lot more trouble. Um, But so for centuries, Caxton's edition is the edition that is known. And what Caxton's edition is, is uh, the whole book from beginning to end. And it's in chapters, like a modern novel, and it's... Uh, each chapter is separated into sections, so it's separated into books and then chapters and then sections, and each section is a couple of pages long, and that gives it this momentum and makes it feel a lot like a modern novel feels. In June of 1934, in Winchester Library, uh, the Winchester College is a what we would think of as a high school in England. Uh, they were reorganizing the library, and they have an archive, and they had manuscripts in the archive that weren't known. Some manuscripts, because it's a really old building and a really old library, they have some manuscripts that aren't labeled. And uh, one of the schoolmasters, Walter Oakshot, found a manuscript. It started in the middle. It wasn't labeled. But he had recently been reading Lamort D'Arthur, and he recognized that it might be Lamort D'Arthur. It was known, I mean, people who read it could tell that it was about King Arthur, uh, but it wasn't starting on page one. So that's how the explanation for how it could be there for so long and not recognized. He read it and he recognized that it was Lamort D'Arthur, but it was different from Caxton's edition. Uh, And so that led to like an explosion of interest and the preeminent Arthurian scholar of the time, Eugene Vinever, came to Winchester College to look at it and uh, studied it for years. And the conclusion was the Winchester manuscript was an older manuscript that is written with pen and uh, ink instead of on vellum, instead of printed. Uh, It was older than Caxton's edition, and it was different from Caxton's edition. So after centuries of Lamort d'Arthur being a thing, in ni- the 1940s, Vinever published a new edition based on the Winchester Manuscript instead. And according, based on Vinever's study of the Winchester Manuscript, Vinever thought Mallory never intended this to be one story beginning to end the way Caxton presented it. Mallory structures it as a collection of eight tales that are published in one book, that are bound together. Published is the wrong word for a manuscript, but they're bound together in one book. The same way that you can find manuscripts that have very different tales by different authors together bound in one book. Like, that happens all the time. Like an anthology or something. Like an anthology or something, for sure. Something that I was thinking when I was reading it, I I was thinking about, like, the Grimm's Tales or something like that. And this is exactly the kind of thing that I was wondering, is, like, what was the structural intention if it was meant to be, like, this linear you know, story, or if it was meant to be like, here are collected legends thereof. 
Caxton wrote a preface to his print edition. And in his preface, he said, This guy, Mallory, came to me with a book and I took it and edited it and gave it titles and gave it chapters and put it all together in one book. And for centuries, people basically were like, eh, is that really true, though? (laughs) (laughs) Because, I mean, and that sounds like, well, why would you not believe him? But he also says in his preface that, like, various gentlemen from England came to me and said, you must publish a book on King Arthur. And I said, how could I possibly? Because Arthur's not real. And they said, here are all the proofs why Arthur is real. And then I said, well, someone happens to have just given me a manuscript. Like, he does not present it in a very plausible way. (laughs) It's like destiny. Yeah, I Um, I see. So who knows what's true and what's not. But basically, people (laughs) thought that he was, you know, maybe he gave the the chapter titles but people thought that he was exaggerating about how influential he was on the structure and then when the winchester manuscript was discovered in 1934 vinever really argued strongly that uh mallory did not write one book he wrote eight tales and Mm. that's why there are characters who show up in one tale, who die, and then in another tale are back again. And there are characters who seem to be really characterized. One, like Gawain is a great example. He's sometimes this heroic uh, warrior, and then sometimes he's like a very sensitive uh, romantic. And then sometimes he's like driven by wrath, and sometimes he's yeah. honorable, and it it's kind of all over the place. But if there are eight different tales, then he's consistent within each tale, and then it's just a different tale. That's Vinever's argument. I actually think Vinever overstates his case. And also that uh, the concept of artistic unity in the way that Vinever wants to imagine it didn't really wouldn't really have occurred to Mallory. Like the question of, did you write one book or eight? Mallory would be like, I don't understand the question. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't there like 16? Yeah. You'd be like, I wrote 16. What are yeah. you talking about? Yeah. And if it's in, like one book, <laughs> what do you mean? If it's in one <laughs> right. binding, it's one book, right? <laughs> and they're all about Arthur. So it's all the same thing. But there are different stories, of course. There's the story of when Lancelot climbs up a tree. And there's the story of when Lancelot goes swimming. Those are two different stories. Like, I don't, uh, I don't really think... Mallory would understand the question. Okay, mm-hmm. so I have a question. I, when I'm have been thinking about this book, I keep coming back to the concept of fan fiction mm-hmm. in terms of like just trying to put it in a con in a context that I can understand for for like what he was doing, like taking these well known characters and then kind of like putting his own spin on it. You could imagine, right, that you would have like a single fan fiction author who writes multiple stories again in the same universe but they don't necessarily have to be consistent with each other right they can be slightly different takes on the same characters right you can easily imagine an author who wrote uh 1500 pages on the adventures of Jean-Luc Picard and Data and Riker and the characterization is mostly the same and it's the same world. But if story number one and story number 20 contradict each other, they would be like, eh, 
You know, it's the same. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same world. And if you ask that person, did you intend to write one book? They might be like, yeah, the book of stories about the continuing adventures of Starship Enterprise. Right. But is it one unified artistic unit beginning to end? Like, I don't know, man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So this was exactly the kind of thing that I was wondering of like, did Mallory, what was Mallory's project? But I guess we, from what you're saying, we don't really have good insight into this of like what I was thinking of like the brothers Grimm who are like self-consciously kind of, you know, constructing an ethnography, you know, based on like folk tales, you know, who are like, they're not trying to like smooth out, make like a nice narrative. Like some of the Grimm's tales, you read them and you're like, wow, this is boring. Like it's badly rendered, you know, like maybe the bones of the story are okay. And then other stories, it's like, wow, this is evocative. Like I'm sucked into this. And it had to do with like who was telling the story, like the actual person that they're taking dictation from. Right. Where whereas Mallory feels more like this is all of a of a author, you know, if that makes sense, like it it all is consistent in its style. So I don't feel like, you know, like was he trying to take like these are the ones that I think are legit and like you know like leaving out because uh, he says at the end he's like I some things I left out because they're not legit and so like what I have here this is the good stuff and don't worry about. Or, or like other times throughout the manuscript, he's like referencing, as it says in the book, like we all know the book. And I'm like, what are you, what, Mallory, what are you talking about? Like, so I don't know. He famously, throughout Lamort D'Arthur, Mallory again and again says the French book, as the French book saith, mm, as mm-hmm. the French book. Uh, and there's one point, for example, where he goes and we're in the context of the sword in the stone. The sword in the stone is in uh, the an anvil in the yard of the greatest church in London. And then Mallory says, and whether that's St. Paul's or not, the French book maketh no mention. So like he, he specifically is like, you know, I know it's the greatest church in London. Is it St. Paul's? The French book doesn't say, right? The His references to the French book are not intended as, you shouldn't think of those as like, I'm not going to mention stuff because it's in the French book, so I don't need to. You should think of it more as him citing his sources, as him saying, right. like, so this is why it's confusing, because, like, I'm like, yeah, so is he, like, giving us a translation for Britons, or is it, like, yes I'm, no. yeah, or this is, like, definitive, because I've, like, I have good judgment. So you know he is, I mean? so when he says the French book, he is uh, citing a source, he's saying, and the French book is something that people might know of, like, there were, there's more than one. Uh, He uses more than one, and there are more than one known. But uh, if you were a learned French-speaking reader, you would always know which French book he's in at any given moment, because he stays quite close to it. And if you weren't, you're aware that there are French books about King Arthur, and so he's citing his sources. But he's doing it um, uh, disingenuously, because (laughs) it's not true like it's he is using french sources and a lot of his writing is straight translation um but a lot of it isn't and it is you cannot tell based on how often he mentions the french book you can't tell whether you're reading a part that is a straight translation or a lot he's not accurate about that 
because his reason for citing his sources, like, and this is a medieval concept of authorship, right? Post 17th century, uh, post um, the Romantic era with a capital R, uh, we in Europe and European descended languages have really fetishized originality. And like an artist is a real artist if they created something directly out of their brain and the more inspired by their own individual genius, the more it's real art. And if it's inspired by anything that someone else has ever done, it's derivative and they're not real artists. And we still carry the weight of those kind of assumptions in the 21st century. Like we still kind of feel like well, a translation's not real art because you didn't come up with it from your own, like it didn't ex nihilo your own genius. But in the That's Middle what Ages, makes it legitimate, right? Exactly. In now. Yeah. yeah. But in the Middle Ages, that was not at all the assumption. It was the right. opposite, right? If you yeah. wanted to slander an artist, you would say, you are just making that up, <laughs> right. <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh, that's so funny that it's like, it's just a completely different way of viewing like art and what what counts as like high versus yeah because low they're art. like who are you to say this yeah you know like yeah you you're a nobody yeah Chaucer had the same we problem see that he exactly. was like I totally yeah all over <laughs> Chaucer like, I totally Chaucer got is this very uh, conspicuous <laughs> very about funny. it yeah <laughs> like Chaucer is always denying his own creativity it's really funny and Mallory does that too because that's like a basic assumption of what an artist what an author especially does is you're telling the story not necessarily i mean i do not think that he would uh that what he is insisting on is the historical accuracy of this but he's uh, insisting on the uh artistic legacy or the the faithfulness to the tradition Mm -hmm. right so i think so we can't know what our, what Mallory's uh, artistic project is. And I, in the whole Vinever debate, one of the tacks that some people arguing against Vinever take that I am sympathetic to is who cares what Mallory intended? He's gone. Right. All we have right. is the yeah. book. <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh, and it, you even get a really fun death of the author pun. Yes. I mean, well, like death of the author is a pun on this book. It is. Mm-hmm. That's right. Because Death of the Author, uh, written by uh, Roland Barthes in French, is Le Mort d'Arthur, uh, which is a pun on Le Mort d'Arthur. So in French, the original essay that, that is translated, The Death of the Author, is a Mort d'Arthur pun. You said earlier that all Le Mort d'Arthur feels like it's of a piece with the same style and artistic voice. And People who read it really closely uh, don't think so, <laughs> because oh, okay. <laughs> one of the criticisms that people make of Mallory is that his uh, style tends to be whatever style he read latest. Um, Which so I totally saying, identify with. Yeah, like, for sure. So I, sometimes I'll be writing and and just like so annoyed by the fact that it's like, Oh God, I, you know, I was last reading this person and I'm like way more sarcastic than usual or whatever. I think like there's a middle ground. I don't think that, uh, sometimes people have said that Mallory has no style of his own. He just like adopts whatever style he's reading. You can detect the style of his source and it's especially evident in 
The Grail section, his source for the Grail section is probably written by a clerical author, uh, Sisterson Monk, who was really emphasizing the religious allegorical aspects of the Grail. Um, And there's a whole long thing to say about that. But so in the Grail section, there keep being hermits that show up and explain to the knight what just happened and what it what it means. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, whoa. Yeah, it felt like a homily or something yeah. of like, yeah, somebody explaining the allegory of this. And Mallory cuts that down a lot from his source, but he still leaves in a lot of it anyway. Mm-hmm. And then the other section is the Roman War, which is early in the book, is... His source for that is an English instead of a French text. He doesn't use a lot of English sources, but his source for the Roman War is English. And his source is an alliterative poem. And so suddenly he starts alliterating a lot. And he doesn't reproduce the alliterative poem. It's not in verse, but he will write long alliterative lines and even add his own alliterations that weren't in the original poem. If you read a version based on Caxton's edition, the Roman War is much, much shorter in Caxton's edition than it is in Winchester's edition. So you might not have noticed that, depending on what edition it was that you had. But in the Winchester edition, what the big difference is, one of the huge differences is that the Roman War is, you know, two or three times longer. I did want to ask about that. Like, did English people really think that they conquered Rome at one point? Or was, is that just like a, a happy fantasy that they knew was a fantasy or yeah. It seemed like he kicked down the door and it was like, stay off my island. I don't like, I don't owe you anything. And then he's like, you better be glad that I don't want to conquer you. And then left. Ga- so it sounds like you read Caxton's edition because oh, okay. Caxton downplays the Roman war a bit. In the Winchester edition, he absolutely conquers Rome. He kills the oh. emperor. Uh, he conquers Rome. Rome is now a, a tr- give truage to Britain and most of Europe on the way to Rome too. And I would say, to answer your question, Anya, that like I would not attribute historical naivety to medieval people. That on one hand, they don't have access to historical sources as re- nearly as readily as any regular person does now. And they also... Um, are not like not certainly not all of Mallory's audience are historians but on the other hand I don't think that they're any more likely that medieval Britons are any more likely than modern ones to confuse fantasy for history you know what I mean Mm -hmm. so there I I am positive there are some people who read this and are like yeah Britain once conquered Rome that's definitely true And I am positive that there are some people who read it and they're like, what a nice story. King Arthur wasn't real. (laughs) It's like, that's cool. He's like subverting real history and it's like a fun little twist. Now, in Mallory's source, Arthur loses at that point and does not conquer Rome. So Mallory didn't think that he was writing history. He didn't even think he was being faithful to his source. Mallory changes things around so that Arthur wins the Roman War. Interesting. In his source, the Roman War happens right at the end of Arthur's life, and he's about to conquer Rome when he hears news that Mordred has usurped his throne and married Guinevere, and he has to go back and fight Mordred and then die. Mm. But Mallory moves the Roman War to way early in 
Arthur's career so that he conquers Rome and then goes home and everybody's happy and isn't it great Arthur is Emperor of Rome now. (laughs) It does underline his potency. Yeah, he's very ascendant in the early part of the story and then, or at least in the version that I read, Arthur and especially Merlin kind of drop out of the story and it really just follows the roundtable nights for a long time. Yeah, that's not just your edition, that's... That's how it is. That's for sure. And, you know, you were saying fan fiction earlier, Anya, and it was really that part. I think I sent you a message about this where I was like, this reminds me of reading comic books, where if you try to get into comic books, it's like impossibly difficult because (laughs) there's like, where do you start? Right. Even if you start at the beginning, it doesn't make any sense. And what I found and we're, I guess we haven't yet gotten to our first experience of this book. Um, I think I this found... is a record for like amount of <laughs> time before taken. we, in theory, finish our introduction. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. No, this is great. I love this discussion. Um, like I've read this book a few times now. And, uh, and like comic books, what I have found is that the more I run into the characters the more associations I build between their like relationships and stuff. And so like, I'm able to be like, Oh, Sir Gawain, who is related to King Arthur Mm -hmm. as like his, you know, and Oh, right. Galahad is the son of Lancelot. They're not like competing knights who are peers. They're like directly related in this way. And this is, this person in in the same way as like you run into a character in a comic book and you're like, Oh right. Their backstory is blah, 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 blah. And that gives you like a network of context for the story. And so like, I could imagine that these stories were being told by illiterate people who are like, you know, telling these, and it's almost comic book in the way that Mm -hmm. it's told too sometimes where it's like, meanwhile, we like, we will set down this thread of the story and we will go, over here and you could kind of imagine that people know who sir you know whoever is based on like all the other stories and you don't have to like fill in the backstory to be like oh those two are brothers when they show up like maybe it'll be mentioned but it's not necessary in the same way as in a comic book you don't have to reference all the times these characters have had adventures together to like get the history of everything that's going on. Right, for sure. And all I mean and also uh, when two knights meet, they are likely to fight each other. Yeah. <laughs> Even yeah. when they're like, ostensibly yeah. on the same side. <laughs> for no reason. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because they're in different colored uniforms. Cuz you have to like see fighting. how their power levels match up. Exactly. Totally. It, yeah. And Mallory it, does do a lot of, you know, ranking of, mm-hmm. you know, the greatest knights in the world. He's the greatest and there's a lot of mentions of uh, Lancelot, Tristan, and Lamrock are the three uh, greatest knights in the world. And then you'll have another knight who, like, uh, is the greatest except for Lamrock, Tristan, and, and uh, <laughs> Lancelot. And then sometimes Gawain gets thrown in there, but he's not really in the same caliber as those three. <laughs> I like Gawain. I like, I have such a soft spot. A lot of people uh, do. Gwen, uh, especially in the back half, uh, is such a very human character with so much emotional nuance that it yeah. is hard not to like him. So before we jump into our first experiences with the text, I did just want to touch on um, 
a conversation that Paul and I had earlier to prepare for this podcast about the idea of Mallory and Lamort D'Arthur as a bottleneck for mm. Arthurian legend, because I found that concept really helpful um, for thinking about just like the role that it plays in Arthuriana more broadly, that it's like there was a bunch of stories being written and passed around before Mallory, and then he kind of like consolidated it, organized it in a way according to like his views and aesthetic, and then everyone who came after Mallory is referencing him in some mm. way as like the how they're measured against him. Yeah, for sure. There are tons of Arthurian stories that predate Mallory. When I said earlier that, you know, Mallory is the text, I say that, but that that isn't just me. It's like Arthurian scholars for centuries, consciously or unconsciously, you read pre-Mallory things through the lens of like, did Mallory use this or not? (laughs) The sources that Mallory used are important because they're Mallory's sources. And I think most of them would be important anyway. Like he's using a lot of the major sources that tell the story and he's he's not just picking them out of thin air. But the really the uh, pre-Mallory text that is Arthurian that doesn't fit into the Mallory uh, bottleneck is Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. I was going to ask you this because like I was expecting it to happen. But, and then I, at a certain point, I was like, where was the green? What? What? <laughs> but other than that, like, there are a lot of Gwen stories that predate Mallory and yeah. non-specialists don't care about them. <laughs> and even huh. specialists often have thought about them in a different category from the, the sources that Mallory uses, because he's a bottleneck for Arthurian legend, both after Mallory, if you want to write the authoritative version, I said this already, but you either are looking at Mallory or you are deliberately uh, subverting him. In the same sort of way that after Dracula was written, if you want to write a vampire story, you are not ignoring Dracula. You're either writing something that's Dracula-like, or you are consciously subverting Dracula tropes, but you're not ignoring Dracula. Mm, it's the Mount Fuji right. effect. Yeah. Either your painting is of Mount Fuji or it's on Mount Fuji. Right, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so Paul, what was uh, your first experience with uh, King Arthur generally and with Lamort D'Arthur specifically? My mom read me Arthurian stories as bedtime stories. That was my first experience of King Arthur. Probably the two, there's uh, Rosemary Sutcliffe has a collection of Arthurian stories that now when I look at them are very uh, clearly grounded in Mallory and are like children's versions of Mallory stories. And The Sword in the Stone by T.H. White uh, was the other one, which is very explicitly based on Mallory. Uh, So I read those as like children's stories my mom read them to me she was always really interested in arthur especially i didn't know this as a child but especially tennyson um she was like into tennyson and the idols of the king and the lancelot guinevere romance when she was a teenage girl so king arthur stories were like one of the 
narrative backgrounds of my childhood. And then when I went to university, I studied English. I wanted to do more. I wanted to do a master's degree. I had to decide what it was going to be on. And I had a lot of different things floating around that I might do. And I, uh, I was going to write about Hamlet. I used, I, uh, still like, but I used to love Hamlet. I used to sleep with a copy of Hamlet under my pillow because I was pretentious. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> That's cute. I like that. Uh, in like high school, man. Jeez, oh, Louise. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> uh, but then I thought I, I thought I might write a, my master's on Superman because that was my other fixation. And Superman is, by the way, a fixation I did not get until I was studying literature. Like, it, it is not, unlike King Arthur, it's not a childhood uh, interest. But I was going to write about Superman and superhero comics and Arthur, King Arthur. And I thought I would write my master's on Superman and King Arthur and something about adaptation theory. And, like, oh, wow. how you can be, like, how come everyone in the world knows who Superman is? And what's the authoritative version of the Superman story, even though it's been written hundreds and hundreds of times and they contradict each other? And then what's the authoritative version of King Arthur, even though it's been written hundreds and hundreds of times and they contradict each other? And my master supervisor said, like, okay, that's a bit much. For a master's thesis. <laughs> can you can you narrow it down? So I love that idea. Man. Through a process of narrowing narrowing, I said, okay, what if I just do uh the Arthur thing? And what if I compare King Arthur in a bunch of different texts? And my supervisor said, narrow it down more. <laughs> I said, okay, what if I just do uh the Fairy Queen and Mallory? And he said, okay, narrow it down more. <laughs> so I said, okay, what if I just do Mallory? Um, and he said, narrow it down more. And I said, okay, what if I do just, just do holiness in Mallory? Uh, and that's what I ended up writing my master's on. Uh, and then I went and did a PhD. And I said, okay, now I'm going to do Superman and Arthur. And my PhD supervisor said, eh, even for a PhD, this is too much. <laughs> <laughs> so then I said, okay, back to the Fairy Queen and Mallory. Uh, the Fairy Queen is a 16th century Arthurian text that is very, very different in how it imagines Ar Arthur to how Mallory does. And I was going to write about uh, Fairy Queen as a post-Reformation Protestant text in contrast to uh, Mallory as a pre-Reformation Catholic text, even though calling it pre-Reformation and Catholic is anachronistic because they didn't know they were pre-Reformation <laughs> right. and you can't be like Catholic before they're Protestants. But I was yeah. going to be like, look at how they represent what it means to be holy so differently and what it means to be a good king so differently. And my idea was, I'm going to say that uh, Mallory says you cannot be faithful to God and an efficacious king at the same time. Those are mutually exclusive. And that's the point of the Grail quest. And uh, Spencer in The Fairy Queen says, those are exactly the same thing. And the more faithful you are to God, the better you are as a king. Uh, and my supervisor said, yeah, sounds good. It's too much, though. Drop the Fairy Queen. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I ended up just writing about Mallory and uh, how Mallory represents the relationship between uh, religion and politics uh, uh, and what holiness means and what political efficacy means in Mallory. And I didn't end up ever writing about either Superman or the Fairy Queen. And so like that whole process just immersed me more and more and more and more and more in Mallory. So when I started my master's, I had taken a course in my, I, I knew Arthurian stories well, but I had taken one course in my master's coursework where we read most of Mallory, but we skipped a chunk in the middle. Um, and that was like all I had read of Mallory directly. But then when I wrote my master's, I had to read it pretty closely and then when I wrote my PhD, I had to read it very, very closely. And then I came out of my PhD kind of obsessed. <laughs> <laughs> so this book has like almost been like a, a really intense organizing principle for like a lot of your life. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, which, pulling back the curtain, is kind of why I invited you to talk about it. One of the points of the show is like giving people a chance to talk about the thing that changed their life the most. I feel like you're, I don't know, most people don't have relationships to a single text, I think, as significant as <laughs> this one is for you. And like, I think that's so cool. Yeah, that story is like exactly the kind of thing that the show's premise is like organized around. So that's really amazing. Y yeah. Um, our teleological purpose has been... <laughs> right. Yeah. Bringing us to I, this point. <laughs> I find so many people who do literature PhDs, they come out of it and are like, nah, I hate my subject now because I had to spend so much time immersed in it. And my experience is the opposite, that like, I came out of my PhD loving Mallory more than I did when I started. Uh, and I keep, I've kept reading it. Yeah, it's for sure an organizing principle of my life has become one. The first time that I read this was in ninth grade. We had uh, my English teacher. I can't remember her name. She was a fabulous teacher, maybe the best teacher I've ever had. She had a, a PhD in English. I'm not sure what her... I didn't even know back then that people... <laughs> <laughs> to get a PhD, you had to have like a focus. I just knew that she was the head of the English department. She made us read Edith Hamilton's mythology uh, that year. Basically, we did like the Western survey, right? So we did, we started with the Greek myths. We moved on to the T.H. White book. Is that Once in Future? Is that the name? Yeah, I can, the Once in yeah, Future King. We read Once in Future. We read some Tennyson. We read some uh, Lamort. And then we read some of the Grail Quest. And so that was my first exposure to this. And then I wanted to read the whole thing after that. And I got kind of bitten by Arthur at that point. Like I, I wrote... I was so inspired by that. And and at that time I was like, I want to write fantasy. Like this was, I was very caught up in this and the way she was teaching and explaining Arthur, just like it, it was blowing my mind and her whole thing of like, and, and I asked her is like, is the once in future King, like, did he write the part where he comes back? And she's like, <laughs> she's like, no. Um, <laughs> And so, like, I undertook to write that story, and I kept handing in chapters to her, and she was very encouraging and sweet to me. Um, and so I have fond memories of that whole thing. And, like, writing Arthur was, like, good practice for me of, like, how I was trying to imitate 
uh, Mallory's whole thing that he was doing, I made it very Catholic. I wasn't Catholic at all, but I was like, it needs to be Catholic because <laughs> this is a Catholic story. Um, so it was very weird. Um, yeah. And, and I've just read a lot of Arthur stories since then. I love King Arthur stories and movies based on it. I love all the adaptations. I love how they play with each other. And in reading it this time, my, that's what my mind was doing as I was going through it was associating it with all the different versions. I was, you know, uh, something a scenario would play out as I was listening. I listened to the audiobook version of this, and um, and I would associate. I'd be like, "Oh yeah, okay." So in a Robert Jordan story, this kind of same scenario happens with characters that have the same name. And oh yeah, in this other book that I read, this happened. And in this other movie, this this thing happened. And that's kind of how I was building associations and networks between the characters is via the adaptations, which are a little bit easier for me to digest as like a modern person in the 21st century than mm -hmm. the language of, um, of the story. Even though I, I, like I said, I did get very emotional at the end where the characters are all in Camelot's falling apart and the characters are dying. I was like, no, you guys, I love you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think, my experience with this text is so different from both of yours. I had very little exposure to King Arthur's stuff growing up. Like, I I don't think I even watched the Disney movie. Um, there was, like, one YA kind of, like, Merlin-based series that I think I read maybe in middle school. But I could not tell you the name of the book or the author. I would say my first like real exposure other than references through Monty Python um, was when I took <laughs> Paul's first um, Lamorte d'Arthur class called A Fine Romance. And that was like, what, a month and a half ago or something? Uh, two months ago. <laughs> um, so this is all very new to me. And I'm someone who bounces pretty hard off of old literature, old movies, like, I think I always say, like, The Graduate is basically when cinema started for me. I just, like, my brain doesn't really process anything older than that, anything in black and white. And so I, to be honest, I still haven't read Lamorte d'Arthur. Um, but I did buy the book, and I did listen to all of Paul's lectures, and I have really enjoyed, um, like, reading around it, I guess. Um <laughs> And I read, so Paul made like this short ebook, I think it's like 40 pages or something, that's basically like favorite scenes from King Arthur, but kind of, or from Lamorte d'Arthur, but like written in the modern vernacular. And I've laughed out loud multiple times while I was reading it. I, you know, and again, I guess not having read the original, I don't know like how much of that was your interpretation. Or just a literal translation. Um, but I really enjoyed that. It's called Maybe If I Pull Harder. And we'll link it in the show notes if people um, want to buy it. I think it's like $5 or something. There's an ebook. There's a print version too. Yeah, I would send you a print version. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, so I guess just like one of my big takeaways from that class was I think, especially in the live seminars, you would be like reading from the book and talking about something 
and you would just be cracking up and like the text would be on the screen and I'd be like, I don't understand why that's funny. (laughs) And then you would explain it and I'd be like, oh, okay, I get it. Like humor, I think is just so like context dependent. And I think so much of modern humor is really based around wordplay that like the, the archaic language can kind of get in the way. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I wouldn't say I'm an Arthur fan yet, but I have really appreciated, or I guess I would say I've developed an appreciation for it kind of secondhand. People don't uh, think of Lamort D'Arthur as funny. Even Mallory scholars don't necessarily think of it as funny until you mention it to them. But I find, I think it's uh, hilarious. (laughs) And I think it's deli- I think deliberately so. I don't think it's accidentally funny. I think like there's a lot of juxtaposition and subverted expectations and just bizarre things happening that Mallory would have expected his audience to find bizarre and to find the juxtapositions uh, surprising. And as I explained to my child just today, surprise is the root of humor. <laughs> yeah. Also, dick jokes, I think, are one of. <laughs> the roots also, of humor and there is i'm trying to remember there's definitely at least one dick joke in the more darthur right wasn't it well because the word sheath right or oh yeah yeah scabbard yeah. is like there's uh, a whole thing when Ma- when arthur gets the sword out of the lake there's the sword in the stone and there's the sword out of the lake where the lady of the lake lifts up her hand and arthur gets the sword and merlin asks him which do you like better the sword or the scabbard and he says, I like the sword better. And Merlin is like, you should like the scabbard more. <laughs> uh, that is foolish of you. And there's a kind of multilingual joke because it, the Latin word for scabbard is vagina. This is good because like, this is the thing that I noticed on this reading and I wanted to bring it up. So that, like, not specifically this, but but definitely that moment was one of the one of the moments that... I feel like um, when I talked about it all being of a piece, the thing that I noticed over and over, and maybe this is just inscribed in the Arthur legend, is that the theme that goes through so much is that things are not what they appear to be. Mm -hmm. Like your assumptions are going to trip you up in this story. And so like they sometimes they don't recognize Merlin. Mm hmm. Because he appears differently. He's like shapeshifter or like in that case. <laughs> or something. The, I imagine him something. like Gene yeah. Parmesan in uh, Arrested Development. He keeps showing up and they're being like, what's going on? He's like, hey, it's me, Merlin. And they're all like, ah. <laughs> anyway, sorry. And then, Go on. and then eventually he just vanishes and they're like, whatever happened to that guy? You make these assumptions about, oh, this is... Uh, you know, this is some night I'm going to be able to beat. And then it turns out you're fighting Sir Lancelot. And you're like, oh, no. Like, I'm sworn to, like, I'm your man. Uh, What is happening? This is the worst situation that could be happening right now. Um, And so it just seems like there's something about, I don't know if the, the right way to characterize it is like, human arrogance or something but just like a lack of humility mm-hmm. uh when we approach situations and uh and the consequences of that and how those can ripple out and become very serious in ways that I don't think 
play out in other heroic legends quite the same way. Like usually you'll get characters who like go too far or they're too ambitious, but that's not really the problem with these characters. It's usually that they have a completely reasonable set of assumptions. They're just wrong. Yeah. And, and then like the consequences of that are pretty steep. That is an aspect that exists in Arthurian legend, uh, outside of Mallory, but I do think that Mallory emphasizes it. And one of the effects, like I would actually argue, we, I mentioned earlier, like, is it one text or not? Did who would, who can know? But I would argue that the effect of putting it all between two covers makes it one text, no matter what Mallory intended, but creates in the reader a inclination to look for these themes that go. And so you notice these things that continue from beginning yeah. to end and whether Mallory put them there on purpose or not, who knows? No one. We never will know. But they're there. <laughs> and the human error and misunderstanding, for sure, that ripples out throughout, like, I think that's that's exactly something that is emphasized through the whole story. And specifically, I mean, what you said about fighting Lancelot, not knowing that he's Lancelot, or Merlin and not knowing that he's Merlin, like, there are lots of assumptions that uh, characters make wrongly, but the most impactful ones are the ones where they literally don't recognize each other and the metaphor of that is they can't tell friend from foe they literally don't know who their friends are and that's Mm. something that is pre that is in arthurian legend legend outside of mallory but i think mallory really brings to the forefront by the way both that he organizes it and also the kinds of things, stories that he chooses to tell. Like one of the things about the organization that I kind of alluded to earlier, but I want to say out loud is Mallory organizes the text, not just in the literal sense of what order he puts them in, but like he chooses some sources and not others. And that shapes how we interpret. I mean, it shapes how he's interpreting and it shapes how people since have interpreted what the Arthurian story is. There are texts that he had access to that he chose not to use. And I'd say for artistic reasons Mm. and that are connected to creating a cohesive thematic direction for the story. And one of it for sure is they don't know who their friends are. They make choices based on all the knowledge available to them, but the knowledge available to them isn't all the knowledge that there is. And they are just wrong. And sometimes there's no good choice, or sometimes there are choices that we can recognize afterwards would have been right, but there was no way for the character to know in the moment what they should have done. Yeah, that I mean, that's really like, driven home at the end, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's kind of an internal plot to commit a coup and replace Arthur on the throne with Mordred. And Arthur sides with Mordred. <laughs> he sides with the traitor and against the most faithful knight. So he literally doesn't know who his friends and enemies are. And it creates a situation w- that destroys him and the kingdom. Yeah. Yeah. So the way that you're putting that, he doesn't know your, you can't recognize your friends and your enemies. That, that, wow. Yeah. You're kind of blowing my mind. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not just that he can't tell whether Mordred is like he also can't tell whether Lancelot is his friend, right? Like it's yeah, and he can't tell who's on his side, and it's from the beginning. And sometimes the fact that he can't tell who's a friend and who's an enemy doesn't always end badly. Uh, sometimes he can't tell, right. but it turns out well anyway. 
but Mm -hmm. it's and it seems to be arthur especially there i have a um friend uh Dr. Michaela Hunter, who teaches the Game of Thrones course and the Robin Hood course at Clockworks Academy, I'm, I'm got this I, this specific idea from her. But she has studied desi- uh, disguise in medieval literature, and she says kings are especially bad in general, not just in Arthurian legend. Kings are especially bad at seeing through disguises because it's hmm. especially important for kings to know who are their friends, and so there's. Uh, they're especially bad at it because it's especially high stakes. So I guess when I, when I noticed this, I was trying to, and maybe this is inappropriate. I, you know, I said it earlier about how Catholic the story feels. So when I was thinking about like, you're misjudging these situations or like that, maybe there's like some kind of Christian allegoresis to be had there. That is like, you know, don't, don't judge others um, or don't judge situations. Like you don't have the wisdom uh, and look at the consequences of your judgments, how, how they, you know, render the earth um, unlivable. Right. That's really good. There's a lot of debate in Mallory's scholarship about how Christian Mallory's perspective is because a lot, some of his sources and particularly the grail quest seems to have been written by uh, clerical writers making a theological point. And the argument has been that the Grail Quest, the French Grail Quest, is more concerned with making a theological point than it is with telling a cohesive story. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's fair. And so I think there's something to that. There's some scholars, especially Vinever, who keeps coming up. He's like the dominating figure in uh, early 20th or in mid 20th century Arthurian scholarship. But Vinever argued strongly that Mallory was secularizing of the story as much as he could. He pulled out the religious significance and the religious points as much as he could. I, in my thesis, basically my, uh, my point, my strongest argument was nah. <laughs> so I think, uh, and in my thesis argued that Mallory's perspective is religious from the beginning to the end or as as religious as uh as anything else like i don't think that he's like the authors of the grail quest making a theological point more than any other point but i do think that he like the argument has been made that 15th century people religion is such a part of the culture that he uses religious references just because it's in the air without really caring about them and i have said that no he actually cares about uh the religious grounding of the text from the beginning to the end that's my perspective this might be a good point to bring up the allegations against mallory and like why he was a prisoner right so the or at least the mallory that we think is the mallory um was accused of rape although because the meaning of that word has changed it's unclear if it was actually rape in the modern sense of the word, or if it was more of a consensual affair that then the husband of the woman he was with um, was not happy with. Mm-hmm. I've um, never heard this, but but it like is relevant, especially to how the story ends. Yeah. Yeah. And to, yeah. to that there's like, there's a lot of right. Like 
pining and yearning and people making bad sexual decisions, I guess, and facing the consequences for them. And that, like, there's a way to interpret, like, some of that thematic stuff as, like, coming from a guy who is currently imprisoned for doing some of those things himself. Yeah, so Thomas Mallory, the most likely candidate for who wrote Le Morte d'Arthur is Thomas, Sir Thomas Mallory of Newbold Revel. The preeminent Mallory scholar right now is Peter Field, uh, and he has made a really convincing argument that this is the Mallory who wrote Le Morte d'Arthur. We don't know for sure, but he's made a really strong case. So Sir Thomas Mallory of Newbold Revel was in prison at the right time, and he was in prison for rape. He was uh, convicted of rape, as Anya just said. Like, So he was not accused by the woman. He was accused by her husband. And it was a statute that was specifically put in so that husbands could charge someone who was sleeping with their wife, whatever the wife said about it. Mm. So... That doesn't necessarily mean that it was consensual. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean that it wasn't. And there's a lot of grappling that Mallory scholars have to do, that Mallory readers have to do, that like, maybe it's just a whole different guy. I don't think so, but maybe. We don't know that it's the same guy. Uh, There's a way of understanding the story, like maybe he and this woman, she was married to someone who was who she didn't love uh, and he he fell in love with her and they ran off together and her husband with the strength of the law uh, took her back and sent him to prison and he's like Lancelot uh, rescuing Guinevere. Right. Um, Or like maybe he's a rapist. Mm -hmm. Um, And in that case, maybe the kind of fixations on sexual ethics in Lamort D'Arthur, like, Maybe they're about how, like, you can read into the Mort d'Arthur as it's written, like, men control women's sexuality. You can also read their passages where knights are specifically textually uh, prohibited from enforcing women, which isn't legally the same word as rape, but it's, you know, uh, not in all of the sources. So maybe he's felt guilty and is overcompensating. Maybe he's like, there's a lot of ways we can hypothetically read it. And there are a lot of passages and like story moments that do seem surprisingly feminist, right? And like emphasize that women have agency and choice. Yeah, absolutely. In Lamorte d'Arthur, if you were to retell the story and uh, remove the women's agency, you would lose a lot of the point of a lot of the stories. Like throughout the stories, there's often everything from in small ways, Guinevere is often the moral judge when Lancelot or other knights send misbehaving knights to the court. They often have to stand before Guinevere and she pronounces judgment Mm. to like, there's a an instance of a man who brings his son to be knighted and he says, this my son, he's not noble born, but he should be knighted. And then it comes out that it's not really his son. His wife has uh, slept with King Pellinore and Mallory gives attention to the wife uh, and 
like he didn't have to, <laughs> but like the wife and what she wanted and her, uh, at, at first it says half by force, but then he gives her a greyhound and it what not and she, she wasn't married yet and uh, she wanted to and like he really spends time in that little moment on her and what she wants and what she chose and why, uh, mm-hmm. and throughout in big moments and in little ones women are responsible for the direction of the story and the the um, women's choices are given actual weight uh, that is not necessarily a default. So yeah, that is a definite tangle in Lamort D'Arthur is what do you make of all of that? Mm-hmm. And I guess like the one that you brought up in class that I was super surprised by and is I think maybe supposed to be a little bit humorous in a way where like the knight and the dwarf are fighting over this one woman's affections and, and they like go to get it adjudicated. And the person's just like, well, what the fuck does she want? (laughs) Yeah. Knight and the dwarf fighting over who gets this woman and they bring it to Sir Gawain and Gawain solves the problem by saying, okay, it's it's like a dog. It's like, he sets it up and I think it is intended to be funny because of how he sets it up. He's like, okay, you stand over here. You stand over there. She'll go with whoever she wants to. <laughs> right. And I just, I think it is intended as hubris that like, guys, how about this? She can go with whoever she wants. That sound good to you? All right, then. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, like, I remember reading a lot of, like, stuff about uh, when I first got access to, like, a university library, and it was like, wait, wait a minute, like, everything's here? This is amazing. Uh, <laughs> and I read, like, a lot of stuff that was, like, about the Lady of the Lake and Merlin mm-hmm. and how they used to, like, there was all these weird stories about them fighting with each other and hating each other. It was just interesting how that character... I can never say her name, like Ninwe. Yeah. There's there's different versions. Yeah. Yeah. Ninev, Nimwe, Vivian. These are all the same person. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And she is like a very strong magical force and seems to be like kind of like earthbound in terrestrial like force of authority. And then Merlin is more like skybound in my mind. Uh, although this is a long time ago when I was like writing my thoughts about this stuff and maybe I'm just remembering more my thoughts than the actual stories, but it was like, there was tension between these characters and she was kind of picking who the best people for the job were. And he was trying to influence what they did after the fact that they had power. Uh, and it wasn't always like the right choices that Merlin was trying to push people towards, but that she seemed to have a greater wisdom than he did. I don't know. It was just interesting how much power there was invested in that character. I mean, back again to sexual ethics in Mallory. In Mallory, the chief lady of the lake, Nimue, uh, Ninev, however you want to say it. I say usually Nimue because it's just, I, for no good reason. Um, <laughs> uh, Merlin falls in love with her or is right. besotted with her. And uh, Mallory says, uh, would never give her no peace. And he follows her around and uh, he says to Arthur, like, if I, she's going to trap me underground forever. And Arthur says, but since you know this, can't you avoid it? And Merlin's like, nah. <laughs> um, 
I made a point in the the romance course that Anya took with me. I made a point that uh, that is not a Greek tragedy. The future is written in stone. That is, I am not willing to change my behavior. Because there are other places where Merlin is able to make prophecies and then things change because of them. But uh, he follows her around and she he, she can't get him to leave her alone. And eventually she traps him under a rock forever. I remember as a kid reading that and being like, what a horrible, tricky uh, woman who trapped the great Merlin underground. And now as an adult, I read it and I'm like, dude, just leave her alone. Like literally yes. leave her alone. <laughs> this is all she is asking you to do is leave her alone. Yeah. And then That's she becomes the energy. She becomes like the magical authority for the back half, or not half, the back five-sixths of the Mort D'Arthur. Um, right. Merlin's not around for very long, really. <laughs> Which I found super surprising. I guess just like what I had kind of osmosed from the culture about <laughs> big, powerful wizards. Like, I guess Gandalf was more my, like, wizard archetype and i think i was expecting merlin to be more in more gandalfy like you know very wise distinct from humans in a really clear way you know like just better than humans in basically every <laughs> every way um whereas it seems like merlin in the mort d'arthur is like very human very flawed you know yeah goes around harassing women like Mm-hmm. Um, it just seems more like a human with some magical powers rather than like some uh a being that's like completely apart. I don't know how much that that comes out in other adaptations, like in the Disney Sword in the Stone. T. H. White characterizes Merlin very differently from how Mallory does, and T. H. White characterizes many of the characters very differently from how Mallory does, often very conspicuously and always uh, knowingly white who wrote the sword in the stone and the once and future king he was very very knowledgeable about mallory but he the way that he characterizes merlin is so uh appealing <laughs> and merlin in lamort d'arthur is not this uh all wise character that th white makes if i was gonna hang out with one of them I would hang out with T.H. Uh, White's Merlin any day. <laughs> oh, for sure. Even though, even the Disney one is like, and he's kind of like a riff on on T.H. White's. Yeah. Well, the Disney is uh, ostensibly an adaptation of The Sword in the Stone by T.H. White. Sword in the Stone. Yeah, which is like really like a American parable almost in the way it's constructed. Or maybe I'm totally wrong about that. Like, isn't it related to, like, the JFK administration self-consciously? Um, and... Maybe. I, I think it's more, I don't I think it's more the other way around. The JFK administration self-consciously associates itself with Camelot. Because it was Camelot, the, the musical, which is also based on T.H. White's book, was popular. Was, like, a, a, a big hit when the JFK administration came out. So it was written before okay. JFK. Oh, in my mind, it definitely wasn't. So, yeah, I'm totally wrong about that. I guess, yeah, it just meditates so much on leadership mm-hmm. and on government that I am. Yeah. So I guess when I read it, I 
I was just thinking a lot about like it's talking about what good leadership is. Yes. And Merlin especially seems like self-consciously like informed by political theory and philosophy and things like that and is trying to teach this stuff to Arthur who's like, yeah, but what if we just hit people really hard? <laughs> I am almost as obsessed with uh, the Once of Future. No, it's not really true. But I am, I love the Once of Future King very much. He was interrupted in writing The Once of Future King by World War II. So he started it before, he ended it after. And he when he was almost done, he wrote in a he in a letter that he has had a sudden insight into the central theme of the text of Mallory, that the whole thing is an antidote to war. And so he goes back, T.H. White does, and rewrites the Once and Future King with that in mind. And whether that's an accurate read of Mallory or not, uh, it is, an, I think, certainly a read of Mallory that uh, you would be inclined to right after World War, World War II, that Mallory is, according to T.H. White, Mallory is trying to work out a way to avoid war. Mm-hmm. And so The Once a Future King is consciously (laughs) about a way an antidote to war and what how do we avoid war and the war of the roses ended literally a month after mallory finished the mort arthur so mallory was also writing while his country was at war and a war that seemed i mean uh the war of the roses the hundred years war was also really recent history but the the war of the roses how many people actually how how bloody it was is unknown but it's called a war it may have been more skirmishy and infighting but uh mallory definitely is himself writing while his country is at war and while people are thinking a lot about what's a good king look like and uh do you become king by being better at war than your enemy and didn't the book ended before he could see how the War of the Roses ended, which was you end the War of the Roses by being better at uh, war. <laughs> That's how you get to become right. king. That's how Henry the Seventh became king. Is he stabbed really hard? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I think that the read that, especially the end of Lamort D'Arthur, that like there must be some other way of deciding how to be king. <laughs> right. I don't think you have to be living right after World War II to find that in the end of Mallory. Um, we've mentioned a couple of times that Anya took my first Mallory courses course, A Fine Romance. I've divided uh, Mallory into three because I decided it was too long to try to teach it as one course. Um, the first one was The Fine Romance. The last one, which is coming up at the end of July, is uh, called The Quest for the Holy and is all about the Holy Grail. But the second one that I'm in the middle of teaching right now, and so it's on the front of my mind, is all about war and kingship. And so I'm thinking a lot about that, like, day by day right now, is is what exactly is Mallory's attitude towards war and kingship and how you become a good king and what a good king does. Well, and in the Fine Romance course, we did talk a bit about knights and what it means to have a bunch of like heavily armed macho dudes just like wandering around all the time getting into fights with each other 
Right. Um, and how, like, the structure of chivalry is kind of like a way to control and rein in that male aggression. Yeah, for sure. We did talk about that, and it's also like a central concern of Mallory, of Arthurian literature, of chivalric romance and literature in general. As a practical necessity, you have to come up with some kind of social mechanism to restrain the violence of heavily, yeah, exactly, heavily armed entitled people with uh, <laughs> horses and armor and swords <laughs> who can probably kill anyone they want to, and there's not much we can do about it. So let we have to create a narrative context that prevents them from doing it. Well, and we are learning right now in the world, and especially in the United States, that uh, a lot of police is basically they don't kill people if they don't want to. <laughs> uh, yeah. And that right. the stories that we've told ourselves about regulation restraining them aren't really true. Uh, it's more narrative that restrains them. And so we need to kind of, re as a society, rethink that narrative and find ways to change how we conceive of who police actually are. Because we, I think, are seeing object lessons over and over that if police want to kill someone, they will. Yep. And there's something similar, like uh, knights are not cops. But if a knight wants to kill a peasant, he probably will. So it, there's a lot of effort put into, necessary effort put into narratives that convince knights that they don't want to kill peasants. Oh my god. And that's really what chivalry is. You just blew my mind with the idea of knights as cops and how, like, <laughs> yeah, the structures. I don't require... want to think of knights as cops because I like knights. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's definitely there a, a moment where it was in the later part of the narrative and Lancelot has been, like, away like you know nobody knows where he is and he's making his way back to the kingdom and i think he was getting a ride from either a cart right or yeah and he just like up and kills the guy because he won't like answer his question he just gets up he hits him really hard it you know says like he gave him a mighty blow and the man fell down dead and then he looks at the other cart right and he's like can we go now and the guy's like yeah 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 which way where do you want to go and i was like lancelot stop stop what are you doing you just turned into a bad guy but the story really didn't treat it that way it was like that guy should not have been talking back to lancelot and so like yeah it's just interesting where the ethics of the power dynamics. This is one of the things that I love about T.H. White's uh, characterization that I don't think is actually in Mallory, or you have to dig pretty deep to see it in Mallory. But in T.H. White, Lancelot is a sadist. Um, yeah. And T.H. White says that, you know, he Lancelot just enjoys hurting people, but he feels bad about wanting to and enjoying hurting people. So he counteracts that desire in himself by really being a chivalrous knight more than any other chivalrous knights are. So T. Right, White, that's why he's like that. Why he's yeah. the greatest knight ever is because he recognizes in himself that he needs to be restrained. Right. He likes hurting people, so he follows the rules of chivalry really carefully so that he won't hurt people because he knows that it's wrong even though he likes doing it. And I think, although that's T.H. Uh, White, not Mallory, I think you can read that back into 
like the structure of chivalry in general. And that's where you see the Mort Arthur as an attempt to find an antidote to war, not just on a macro scale, but also to find an antidote to violence. It's a possible read. I think it's a possible way of understanding. All chivalry romances are about finding a way to deal with and restrain violence. Like, as we're talking about this, it also reminds me of the Mark Twain adaptation, which just kind of basically says they were all sadists. Yeah. Um, and then it like very kind of pessimistically posits that that's people. Wait, Mark Twain did an adaptation of Arthur? Oh, totally. Yeah, it's the like a time travel Knight book. Knight King Arthur's Court. Oh, oh. Yeah. A Connecticut Yankee. A Connecticut King Yankee in Arthur's Court. Yeah, that's, that's right. right. <laughs> and then it got made into a really goofy movie. There's many movies of it, actually. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, you know, there's like the Disney A Kid in King Arthur's That's Court, the one I'm thinking yeah. of. Okay. okay there's yeah. the one with uh, Martin Lawrence where he goes. Yes. Well, I don't I know actually, what that's called. I haven't seen it, but. It's like Black Knight or something right. like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is another fish out of water. Like, that's a way to do that story. It's kind of a fish out of water. Yeah, there's a bunch of versions of that story but i think mark twain's version basically says that like we think as moderns we are so like evolved and smart and like peaceful now because we're modern right and ancient people were savages and barbarians and he goes back in time and he teaches the arthurians like how to make guns he is just as savage the connecticut yankee as any of these brutal knights Mm -hmm. there's nothing romantic about it and the whole thing is like very dark by the end. Yeah. It's it's a specifically a pushback against Tennyson. Yeah. Tennyson, who's very, very romantic in his representation of Arthur's court, more so than Mallory is for sure. So in your book about Mallory, the... Um... Maybe if I pull harder, which is so titled, can I just tell the joke <laughs> that someone shows up in... in uh, Arthur's court and she has a sword strapped around her waist. She says, only the a knight without deceit will be able to remove the sword. And Arthur says, removing swords is totally my thing. Let me do it. <laughs> and maybe if I pull harder, says Arthur. <laughs> um, Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I have to tell my own joke. No, that was also a favorite moment from the book. There's a section in that book about Palamedes and basically like the other knights kind of bringing up the fact that he's a Saracen Mm -hmm. being a little bit uncomfortable about it and I guess there's you know been a lot of debate and discourse recently about how white supremacists both like purposeful and accidental will often um, harken back to like historical realism for like why things have only white people um Mm -hmm. and then you know there have been people pushing back against that and saying like no actually like medieval europe was more diverse than you think um Mm -hmm. palamedes is clearly not white right like he's either arab or black or something that is like he's like visually and culturally distinct from the the anglo-saxon people around him yeah i mean Probably. The, the the short answer is, yeah, totally. <laughs> the longer answer is, yeah, probably. Race, as I'm sure you are already aware, I'm 
think I've even heard you talk about on this in this podcast. Uh, race is a social construct, not a biological reality. Um, so race is made up. And it was made up at a point. Like, it hasn't always existed as a concept. And there were, in the 15th century, um, people with all kinds of skin tones and from all kinds of places. And it's absolutely true that in 15th or 14th or 13th or 12th or 10th, you know, I could say numbers, century England, there are people there from not there. Yeah. (laughs) There are people with a variety of skin tones walking around England in 1470 um, and in the imaginary England that Mallory is writing about. So in medieval literature, Saracen is a word that we usually interpret as meaning uh, Muslim, but it has a bit of the same semantic range that we sometimes see Muslim used as if it's interchangeable with Arab, although it isn't, mm-hmm. right? And so some writers clearly distinguish, some writers don't. Palamedes is a religious Saracen. Is he racially distinct from the other knights around him? Probably, but Mallory doesn't do a lot of physical description and certainly doesn't tell us what color anyone's skin is. Mm-hmm. Uh, Palamedes has two brothers who this does not get made a big deal about. Um, they are converts. End of story. They're they're converts and we don't talk about them as Saracen knights. Converts to Christianity? To Christianity. Oh, okay, to Christianity. Okay. Yes, sorry. So Saracen seems to be a religious marker primarily in Mallory, but I think we should recognize that although it's inaccurate, it happens. Yeah. <laughs> in the same way as today, if you call some if you have a character who is Muslim, that does not necessarily say anything about their race, but a lot of readers are going to read it as if it does. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. totally. Well there for sure are knights who aren't from the island of Britain. Like even Lancelot isn't. Yeah, that's like part of the point, right? Yeah. Is that they're from all over Christendom or beyond Christendom. And beyond Christendom. And there are for sure knights who are not Christian. And Palamedes is the one who is in King Arthur's court, but they also fight against some knights who aren't Christians. And there's knights who are from Ind, which in the Middle Ages uh, is not the political entity of India, but it means like generally Southern Asia a huge range so Ind could be anything to all the way to like southern china and but there's characters and we don't uh necessarily know they're characters who like him of Ind, and then he has three brothers and they're not of Ind. and so does that mean that they're all from india or did this one character go to in or like why is he of Ind? and Ind is also a color <laughs> like indigo right. indigo so maybe he's just wearing blue <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> we don't. We can't really know for sure. So Palamedes is a Saracen. I think he's not white. The text doesn't seem to care whether he's white or not, but it does care that he's not a Christian. Yeah, because I don't think it mattered. No. The point is that these are the greatest knights of the world, yes. right? That's I why. See. Yeah. And so it's like it's important that he is not Christian. That he is like 
coming from somewhere else because yeah these are like the avengers yeah. right they're like they're the best of the best all together working together to one end palomides does convert to christianity eventually he says uh for a lot of the story and there's like again we could go on and on and we won't because it would take we could talk about it for hours and hours <laughs> but palomides pretty early says that he's a christian in his heart but he hasn't been baptized because, and then there's a couple of different art, like, because I'm not going to be baptized until I win the love of his soul. And then when his old is like, I am never going to love you ever. <laughs> he's like, well, I'm not going to be baptized until I win seven battles. And then, <laughs> he, and then at one point he fights Tristram and Tristram is like, listen, listen, enough of this. I'm taking you to be baptized right now because I almost killed you and I don't want to send you to hell forever. <laughs> he's like a master procrastinator. Yeah. <laughs> Master procrastinator. That's say that three times fast. <laughs> yeah. I I'm glad you brought up the narrative of white supremacists that the you know the past was all white and it is sometimes tied up in like that's when things were good, but sometimes it's used as like so we should never ever uh have any people of color in any old thing and i'm glad you brought that up just for like no that's not accurate at all <laughs> yeah in fact you we've mentioned it's not the topic of this today but we've mentioned gwen and the green knight a few times i wrote a paper once that said the great the green knight is arab or is uh, based on arabic legend the green knight is also like this he's physically green so <laughs> right. he's like a green man. He's a green man, but he's uh, it's a confluence of Celtic and Saracen. That is to say Arab in this case, representations of, of the other. So it's like any kind of other is the same as every other kind of other. So if you're Celtic or you're Arab, it does not matter. <laughs> when isn't there a movie coming out now about the green Knight and it casts um, Dave Patel in the lead role. As yeah. Yes, right. that's gonna be yeah, so. Yeah. I mean, it looks great. I haven't seen it, obviously, but I'm so excited about that movie. Yeah, it looks really good. Uh, d did you find that decision very validating? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, like, there's no actual necessarily reason why Gwen is white. There actually isn't. He's related to King Arthur, but his we don't know that King Arthur's white actually, and also he right. has two parents. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so like he's he's Arthur's nephew, his mother is Arthur's sister. Just as race is a cultural construction, masculinity and femininity are cultural constructions. The masculinity in Lamort d'Arthur is very constructed, uh, but it's along different lines from 21st century masculinity and the part of 21st century masculinity where men aren't allowed to have feelings unless it's anger, that's just not there <laughs> yet. Uh, in fact, in a lot, of, I don't think necessarily in Lamort Arthur, but in a lot of medieval literature, like men have bigger feelings than women. Yes. Riding around on your horse, weeping so everyone can hear, that is manly. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, and, what and could not be feeling, more manly than that? What could be more manly than, <laughs> it's one of these moments, this is a moment that I'm not sure is intended for humor, but I find really funny, is there's a couple of points, there's one where a knight, like, just rides past Arthur in his court, wailing, 
And I just imagine him, like, riding on his horse, crying loudly, riding past. And everyone's like, what's that, what's that guy's deal? And then Arthur sends some people after him to find out. But people do that, like, ride through the woods crying because of how masculinity is constructed in England in the 15th century. Like, that's a very manly thing to do. It would be much less manly if your heart is broken and you don't react. I never thought that I would be in the position of saying, let's bring back traditional masculinity, but I feel like (laughs) this is a strong argument for it. Right? (laughs) Like, it wasn't all good. But uh, I think that modern masculinity is especially impoverished in its conception. Is there anything else you want to say about this book, Paul, before we wrap up? (laughs) Well... How much time do you have? Um, (laughs) I basically, I want to, before we end, mention a bit, I, this will be a little bit self-serving as a plug, but my three courses, A Fine Romance, Fight for Right, and The Quest for the Holy, I want to mention that I broke it up that way for convenience, but it's also kind of how I see the three main thematic strands of Lamorte d'Arthur. It is really true that the whole book is a romance and it's about love and romance doesn't always necessarily mean a love story but it is both a romance in the medieval sense of it is about adventure and knights uh having personal individual struggles and also in the modern sense that it's a love story and another love story and another love story and it's about broken hearts and so many uh, love triangles so many love triangles and Lancelot and Guinevere and Arthur's love triangle is like a driving force through the center of the story. And then entwined in all of that, it is also this uh, story of chivalric ethics and war and kingship and how do you fight and how do you restrain violence and is there an appropriate way to be violent and yes, there probably is, but maybe there's not. And it's all about like war and fighting. And then entwined in all of that is the third strand of holiness, that it's about personal piety, and especially the Grail quest, but then that cascades backwards, that it's both about how to construct a uh, faithful uh, society, but it's also, especially in the Grail quest, about how a unindividual acts in the world in a way that's faithful to their god, and That's something that the whole text is concerned with all the way through. And one of the things I love about Lamort d'Arthur is the way those three things... For the sake of my course, I pulled them apart from each other. And now I'm going to say, you can't pull them apart from each other. (laughs) (laughs) That they're all like uh, tripping over each other and wound up in each other in so fascinating ways. We started off saying that um, maybe... These are different tales that are just kind of put next to each other and aren't really the same story beginning to end. One of the things that I, and I said by virtue, I said at some point back there, by virtue of being in between two covers, it creates a thematic unity for the reader to find. One of the things that I think is an inadvertent effect is these like inconsistent characterizations and these divergent ideas I actually think that ends up making the story more uh, human and more deep and even more realistic because real life humans are not consistent in their characterization. 
And there are these inconsistencies and in how people behave and how people present themselves and presenting all these variants right next to each other so that we, the readers, just have to make sense of it, I think is part of what gives Mallory so much depth because taking two different stories that were written in different contexts for different purposes and just putting them next to each other and being like, okay, make sense of this. Uh, (laughs) I think we can make sense of it. And it creates this level of depth that I don't think uh, we should underestimate. And is one of the reasons why I love Mallory so very much. I think we've already talked a lot about how this book has impacted you um and what you think about it um but what has been your experience recommending it to other people and is it something that you would necessarily recommend you know that your average person just kind of like pick up and try and um read through like what recommendations do you have along those lines honestly i recommend it a little bit hesitantly because it depends on the person Because it is the only work of medieval literature read widely by non-specialists for pleasure, uh, because it's (laughs) so late, unlike something like Chaucer, it's usually just put in front of people exactly as it is, and it is readable as it is, but not necessarily easily. So I do recommend it to people, I would recommend it to people, um, but I can't hide and I wouldn't want to hide that it's a bit of a, a commitment. And it's not the easiest hill to climb. So I I know when I recommend to just like a person, hey, you should read Lamar Darthur. They're like, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> what edition or like editor would you recommend for someone who maybe listened to this podcast and is like, okay, that's that sounds interesting enough. I want to give it a stab. Because I know, you know, like the original manuscript in Caxton, it has that medieval approach to spelling um which is to say it varies wildly um but there are some editions that try and like standardize things more to make it a smoother reading experience i think one of the most readable editions it's uh lightly abridged but i think still worth reading if you want to just pick it up and read it like it's a novel is the uh oxford world classic edition which is edited by Helen Cooper. The audiobook version is always a good choice. That'll always be Caxton's edition because the Winchester edition, the Winchester manuscript is out of uh, copyright, but the edition based on it was recent enough that it's still under copyright, believe it or not. (laughs) So (laughs) Lamort D'Arthur is not public domain yet in the Winchester edition. Someone would have to do a whole new edition to do an audiobook, and they, no one wants to. So any audiobook version you'll get will be Caxton, which will mean you'll miss the Roman War episode, mostly. I like the Winchester manuscript better, so I generally recommend that people find something that says Winchester on it. Helen Cooper's is abridged. If you want a full, unabridged version, uh, Dorsey Armstrong has an edition that has modernized spelling, and then on the facing page the original text oh i love that kind of thing me too that's one of the reasons why i really like seamus heaney's beowulf is that it does that my i think probably there are some editions that don't but my edition of seamus heaney's beowulf has the old english on one page and the translation on the other and i loved it when i first read it for that reason 
There's an edition by uh, Shepard, which is the Norton edition that is not very accessible, but really fun because he does what almost no one does, which is the Winchester manuscript has some words written in red and the rest in black. And Shepard uses a different font for the red words, which gives you like, there's no other edition, even scholarly editions that do that. So that's a lot of fun if you're up for a bit of a challenge. And if you really want, I mean, again, this is self-serving, but really what I recommend, if you want to get the experience of Lamort Darthur, is you take my courses <laughs> and I'll walk you through it. And uh, there's three of them. The third one is, when this podcast comes out, the third one will be in the future, but the first two will repeat. So you can find those courses on my website and I think that uh, reading it with someone is a good choice for a lot of people. I mean, like, I don't want to talk down to people. If you want to read it, it's readable, but it, it can be a bit, uh, um, because it isn't written in, it is in Middle English, not in Modern English. So it's more different than, you know, Shakespeare. Uh, people, it's actually technically a different language. And it can be a bit intimidating and it can be a bit of a grind for people if you're not expecting it or used to it or prepared for it. So I can say I really enjoyed the course. I did none of the signed reading. I literally, <laughs> I uh -oh. just watched the... Good thing it's not great. Yeah. <laughs> I just watched the video lectures. And of course, like the lectures themselves referred to a lot of passages of the text. So I did kind of, you know, read bits and pieces as we went through. As someone who I think has never really enjoyed reading old stuff, but I I really enjoy talking about and learning about the history and the context of all that old stuff. Finding a way to relate to medieval humans as humans, even though they talk funny, you know, like I <laughs> I found um I found it really rewarding that way. I would also really recommend The Once and Future King by T.H. White. It is not Mallory but he is very knowledgeable about Mallory and you will get a good sense of the story and the characters and even a lot of the themes. It's an adaptation. It's, a, it's its own thing, but it's still worth reading. I, you know, I've also taken a, a Clocksworks Academy uh, class. I took Frankenstein class. Frankenstein was the first one I did, but I think you took the very first course I ever taught I at was. Clockworks Academy. That was great. It was so good. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've listened to your podcast, so I was very familiar with how smart you were. And it was like any question that I would ask Paul, he would be like, I'm, if either he knew the answer or he'd be like, I'll get back to you. And then gave like very thorough, wonderful, uh, thoughtful answers that really like helped me to understand a text that I had read, you know, a couple of times by then. I even took like a college class where... I read Dracula, Frankenstein, and Lamort Arthur. It was like a fantasy literature class. And so I've, ha you know, I've been taught by people these exact texts. And Paul, like, pulled out all kinds of stuff that, like, I had never even heard of. Um, that was, it was so good. It's basically just sign up for his stuff. <laughs> like, it's, we're, you know, we've been in his Discord lately, like, taking up too much space, arguing about, like, uh, fascism and fantasy in medieval uh, idiom, you know, uh, uh, Tolkien and George R. R. Martin. There's like lots of smart people there talking about all kinds of smart stuff. So 
you should get into that community. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Um, I, I agree. You should. <laughs> <laughs> so join us next month for an episode on the now classic YA book series Animorphs by Catherine Applegate. Um, and we're going to particularly focus on book number 19, The Departure. And we'll be doing that um, with a guest poetry. I kind of love that just by the coincidence of schedule, these two episodes ended up back to back. Because That's I think, funny. yeah, you know, Lamorne Arthur, a text from literally the 15th century, paired with, I think, a YA fantasy book series that <laughs> a lot of people overlook as just kind of like, you know, cheesy genre fiction for kids. Um, but they actually um, both have a lot of unexplored depths. Um, so I actually I read Animorphs as like a fifth, sixth grader, um, but I don't think I've revisited it since you know puberty. Um, so I'm really excited for this. This is going to be fun. Okay, well, don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts if you like what we do. Um, Paul, where can our listeners find you? You can find me on twitter.com at thatpaulmoffitt. That's Moffitt with two Fs, one E, and two Ts. You can find my website is uh, clockworksacademy.com, and that's where you can find out more about the courses that I teach, and you can uh, buy the Maybe If I Pull Harder book if you would like to. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. I'm Alan. You can follow the show on Twitter at HGStoryCast. Visit our website at HGStoryCast.com. If you'd like to leave us feedback, you can visit HGStoryCast.com contact or send an email to contact at HalloweDGroundMedia.com. Hallowed Ground Storycast is a Hallowed Ground Media production and is produced under a Creative Commons non-commercial share alike license.